Give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Lisa Cypress-Kamen is a widely recognized applied positive psychology coach, author, documentary filmmaker, and lecturer specializing in the fields of sustainable happiness, mindfulness, and integrated well-being. Let's get to it. Here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, broadcasting consciously prepared brain food from the beaches of Malibu, California. Each week, we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is all about the heart. You know, from time to time, we bring up subjects that maybe aren't so comfortable for some of us. And I'm putting us in that arena, me in that arena. And that's really about aging and longevity and the care that we must take of ourselves in order to age gracefully, to age healthfully, and certainly to age consciously. And my first guest is spearheading, really, I think, a tremendous mission of information and study to do just that. Dr. Leslie R. Martin received her MA and PhD from the University of California at Riverside. She is currently professor of psychology at La Sierra University and holds additional appointments in the psychology departments at the University of California at Riverside and Loma Linda University and in the School of Public Health at Loma Linda University. Her research falls into two distinct areas. The first involves personality and psychosocial factors as predictors of health and mortality risk, as well as the pathways they take. Her more than 20 years of work in this area is described in The Longevity Project, a fascinating examination of more than 1,500 men and women from the time they were about 10 years old until their deaths. Welcome, Dr. Martin. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. This is this is a fantastic project, and I'm going to date myself when I bring up um, one that comes to mind, which is the Framingham study, which I yeah, think is still another, in existence, right? Yeah, and then another really great study. I mean, these longitudinal studies that let you see change and development over time are just fabulous. Really fabulous. And, and we're heading into a different paradigm of the way that we age in, from, from my perspective. I mean, I'm in my early 50s. I'm 51 years old. And I have been exercising and practicing, you know, some of these mindful um, modalities since I was a young woman. And so I see people like me, and there are a lot of us out there, will age very, very differently from our parents and our grandparents. 
Yeah, I think that is true. And I think one of the most interesting features of aging now is that we do pay so much more attention to it. And we really do focus on not just the problems and how to fix them, but how to do the whole process well. And doing the whole process of aging well really works backward, right? It's about doing the whole process of living well. It's very true. I mean, one of the things that I think was so fascinating in the Longevity Project is we were able to identify very early in life patterns that sort of set people on a trajectory that was either healthy or not. And and by saying that, I don't mean to imply that, you know, by the time you're an early adult, you're done and, and you're on the path and you can't get off. But very often people don't get off those paths. And so without some careful attention to making changes, we tend to settle into patterns that are lifelong paths and approaches to how we're eventually going to age. Talking about pathways, how does conscientiousness play in our longevity? It's incredibly important. In fact, it was the most important personality factor that we identified from early in life. So you mentioned these were about 1,528 kids that were actually recruited into this study before I was around. So I'll date myself too, but I wasn't collecting data in the 20s. And <laughs> Actually, Lewis Terman and some of his colleagues that were really interested in looking at how, how these smart kids grew up. And he didn't care so much about health and aging, but was interested in, you know, who would do great things and who would really make a contribution to society. And so he recruited these kids. And in the very first assessments in the early 20s, their parents and their teachers answered questions about them. What were they typically like? What kinds of things did they enjoy? And from those very first reports on these kids, we could identify who was conscientious, who was prudent and responsible and tended to stick to the goals. Like if you take something on, you're going to be dogged in your pursuit of that thing. And what we found is that was really an important quality. You hear in, in the media now, I'm hearing more and more about being, you know, being tough and having that mental toughness. And in some ways, that's part of what conscientiousness is. It's that toughness and hanging in there, not giving up and really persisting. And this is ties very nicely into your secondary research focus, which is uh, in relationships and communication and, and adherence, satisfaction, um, and how that affects outcomes. Well, yeah, and I think if we think about personality characteristics that have been looked at in relation to health, conscientiousness is one that, whether it's a longitudinal study or not, does come up very frequently. So people who are more conscientious um, not only are, are pursuing all these goals like I've been talking about, but they tend to think about health outcomes, think about their diet, do the prudent thing, wear the seatbelt, maybe not speed quite as much, and sort of have this general approach to life that is hey, you know, I'm thoughtful and I'm, I'm planning out and I've got a plan B and that does seem to serve people really well. Let's talk about cheerfulness and optimism because this, I, I, and I love talking about this on a happiness show because we actually really believe that that annoying yellow smiley face is, well, uh, just annoying. <laughs> I, I would have to agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's it a factor, right? 
Yeah, and and I think it is kind of funny on a happiness show to to give. I mean, I guess we kind of consider ourselves mythbusters in a way because throughout this project, certainly some things played out exactly as we would have predicted, but there were other things. And this cheerfulness, optimism, sense of humor was one where we were kind of blindsided. What we found is that the most cheerful, optimistic kids actually lived shorter lives than their peers who were less so. And I, when I initially was working, that was actually a big piece of, of my master's project. And I thought, wow, I'm, I think I'm not getting my master's because I've clearly made a really big mistake here. But in going back and looking incredibly carefully at the data, I had not made a mistake. And so we had identified something that I think is quite important, which is the difference between a lifelong approach to all of your decision making and, ha- and how you, you know, interact and, and live in the world versus what many of the other studies, particularly at that time, were looking at, which is dealing with crisis. And it seems pretty clear that when you are facing a crisis, if you're going to stay engaged in the process of, of doing whatever you need to do to get through the crisis and make it okay, you have to believe that it will get better, that you can find a resolution and you can fix it. If you don't believe that, you're not optimistic in that way, chances are much better that you'll you'll give up, that you'll kind of blow it off and think, well, there's really nothing I can do. So facing a crisis, um, optimism, cheerfulness does seem to serve you well. But as a lifelong approach where every everything in your, in your world is shaded by these rose-colored glasses, it does seem to create a cumulative risk. You know, I'll, I'll have another donut and I don't need to worry about that vaccination and eh, I'll back up my computer files later. You can imagine not only the, the health impacts, but the stress-related impacts and all kinds of things like that that over time add up. This is fascinating because what I hear you saying that in, in, in a crisis management situation, we need optimism because along with that optimism comes hope, belief, and faith that it will get better because otherwise we would not be able to keep going. But in our lifestyle management or in our daily life management, we need realism, which includes conscientiousness and, and focus and diligence. Absolutely. And I think another thing to bring in here too, which is similar but not quite the same, is, is the idea of worrying. Um, we tend to sort of denigrate worry warts and we think it's a really bad thing to worry. And I'm, I'm not arguing that we should be really worried all the time. But there have been a number of researchers that have found that, you know, like Irving Janus, the work of worrying does serve a purpose. And so when we worry, we think ahead, we play out scenarios. So maybe we make better decisions. If something goes wrong, we've got a plan B. And that's a very useful thing. Well, it, it is pragmatic, you know, sort of um, pro- projecting our forecasting out, you know, best case scenario, worst case scenario. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to, to be able to do both of those is a great skill. Well, mindfully worrying maybe is what we need to talk about. Mindful, mindfulness is such the buzzword, you know, it's like it's the <laughs> new black, you know, it's a fashion statement. But if we can um, wallow or worry with wisdom maybe is what we need to focus on. I, I don't know. I mean, it's making me, making me think because I'm, I, the older I get, the less I worry. I'm like, you know, what the hell? I, it, it's like, why? It's, it's useless. 
Yeah, and so I think going in and spending a little time on maybe we wouldn't even call it worry exactly, but you know, thinking about possibilities and being thoughtful and mindful about that. But then also keeping that balance and recognizing, okay, what will happen will happen. So I'm not going to give up. I'm going to do what I can. But then I'm going to accept and sort of roll with what does happen and not beat myself up about it if it's not what I had intended. Makes good sense to me. We are going to go to a break in a moment, but before we do, I want to touch upon physical activity and oh, the yes. importance of being active to in, in our aging well. Yeah, so uh, we all know it's good to be active, and our, our study, the Longevity Project, certainly bore that out. But what was really interesting, and I think people love this, is we found that it didn't so much matter what you were doing. So I, I personally love running, so I, I should keep running. But a lot of people, they think jogging, I hate it. And our advice now is, okay, if you hate it, don't do it. Do something else. Dance, garden, walk with your friends, take your dog for, for a trot, something that you enjoy because it's really the, the consistency that's important. So if you like it, you'll keep doing it. So find the thing you like. Perfectly put. We're going to dance off to a break for the short term and then we're going to come back. But I want to give your contact information to learn more about Dr. Leslie Martin and her book, The Longevity Project. And she has three other books that she's written on health related subjects. You can go to, and this is a little bit of a long website address. It's www.howardsfriedman.com slash longevity project slash. And I'll repeat that. It's www.howardsfriedman.com slash longevity project slash to connect directly with Dr. Leslie R. Martin, please visit her on Twitter at Leslie R. Martin followed by the number one. And on Facebook, that page is the longevity project. We're going to take a short break, but before we do, I want to share one of my go-to happiness shortcuts with you. My family and I are foodies and we create great home cooked meals together using HelloFresh the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, HelloFresh creates yummy new recipes that are ridiculously easy to follow and can take anywhere between 20 and 30 minutes to prepare. This week, my kids made HelloFresh's rapid maple balsamic chicken in under 20 minutes, and I prepared the citrus skillet shrimp over basmati rice in about half an hour. HelloFresh sources the freshest ingredients that arrive at your doorstep in a free insulated box. Every HelloFresh meal comes pre-measured and ready to cook. There's no waste, no mess, no fuss. Every recipe is blessed by HelloFresh's full-time registered dietitian to ensure every meal is nutritionally balanced as well as yummy. Make magic happen in your kitchen with HelloFresh. HelloFresh serves up major taste, nutrition, and convenience delivered directly to you. And at Harvesting Happiness, we know that nothing creates happiness and connection like a great home-cooked meal shared with loved ones. Go to HelloFresh.com where you can be gifted a $35 discount off your first week of deliveries. So make your life a little easier and joyful by jumping over to HelloFresh.com and enter the promo code HAPPINESS35 upon checkout. Once again, that's HelloFresh.com and the promo code is HAPPINESS35. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com. 
Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Happiness is an inside job. Wear the message on t-shirts, baseball caps, sterling silver designer jewelry, and more. Please visit our online boutique at www.harvestinghappiness.com. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life. Available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I urge you to download and share this podcast. Why? It's kind, it's free, it's legal, it's available 24-7, and paying it forward is just a nice thing to do. We are talking about aging and aging consciously, aging well. And we're specifically talking right at this moment with Dr. Leslie Martin. She is spearheading the Longevity Project, which is a project that has been uh, tracked for more than, Leslie, tell me again, how many years ago this began? Well, this is well over 80 years now. So it began in 1921 and 1922. That was the initial wave of data collection. So this is longer than the Framingham study. Yeah, and, and it's the only study of of this type that has input not just from individuals, but people in their lives. You know, their spouses answered questions about them, their parents, their teachers. Um, and, of course, they talked about themselves as well. So it's really very comprehensive, although doesn't have every kind of data that we would have liked to have had. I mean, we're incredibly lucky to have been able to use these data and then contribute further to them. But you know, people back then had different ideas of what they were looking at, and it wasn't initially designed as a health outcome study. So we we went in and got the death certificates and, and looked at some of these health outcomes. Speaking of death certificates, <laughs> I'm thinking the death certificate, the death of marriage, divorce, and, and the relationship um, on how divorce and relationships in general affect the longevity of men versus women, because there are differences, is my understanding. There are. So, and, and when we think about actual death as well, there are really good data that following the death of a spouse, um, the remaining spouse is at significantly increased mortality risk for at least a couple years going out. And that that risk is actually greater for men. 
We don't see the same magnitude of effects, certainly for divorce, but everybody knows that divorce is a really stressful thing. And we're not talking about the good kind of stress where you sort of, you know, you're planning for an exciting vacation and it's stressful, but you're loving it. It's really the, the more negative distress kind of thing. But there is an important sex difference there as well. So men who experience divorce are at a greater risk of subsequent mortality, although they are able to partially, and and it's a pretty big effect, mitigate that risk by getting remarried. Yes. Women, on the other hand, are not at actually much risk at all. Um, There's a slight trend, but really they're pretty okay when they divorce. And any small risk that is there, it doesn't really seem to matter if they get remarried or not. So what that suggests is that, you know, as a woman, you're you're not necessarily helping yourself going out and trying to get remarried. What I want to add, though, too, which I thought was really cool there. And I, I work at, you know, at a college, at a university. So I, I interact with a lot of young women. And there is still this this prevailing view out there, particularly among women, although guys express it, too, that to be full and complete and truly happy, you've got to find your life partner. And what our data show is that if if you've got good social connections, and particularly if you're a woman, and I think it's because women tend to have those connections, you you don't need that. So the, the people who were steadily single lived almost as long as those who were steadily married. And so it really speaks to the importance of finding what's meaningful for you in life as opposed to finding a person who's going to bring that to you. I think you bring up a very good point because we are hardwired for connection. We are are hardwired to have a sense of belonging and to be in good, connected, meaningful relationships. That doesn't necessarily mean that it translates to marriage or a life partner. Absolutely. And we another interesting piece of this longevity project was when we well, we initially started looking out at religion and religious engagement, religiosity, because there have been studies that show, oh, yeah, you know, going to church, going to synagogue, you know, that's good for you. So we, we did find that general effect. But when we looked more carefully because we had the data to do so, we found that the biggest piece of that association was explained by the connections, the doing things for other people. And religious organizations often have that as part of part of their mandate, you know, to to help the poor and to reach out to others. We saw by the same token that people who were not religious, but who were very civically engaged, they were doing things in their communities, they had those same kinds of benefits. So not only does it benefit the community that you're reaching out to, but there's a clear and direct benefit to the individual who's doing the reaching out. And I think that's that's so cool. You know, I once um, interviewed many years ago, Dr. Chris Peterson, who is one of the grandfathers of positive psychology, and he was talking about the helper's high, that what happens to us physiologically when we are doing good in the world, when we're actually participating and serving others and getting out of our own way. And I'm wondering if somehow the, the, the chemical alterations in the brain and body are also contributing to our longevity. I think it's entirely possible in this in this project, we didn't have the data to be able to look at that specific question, but it's certainly consistent with the other literature that's out there. And I think the idea that we can create and find meaning in our lives. And even if you're you're reaching out and you're helping people. And so maybe you're seeing some 
some things that are tough to see, but to recognize that, okay, I can make a difference, that that's a very positive kind of, of experience. And we know it does have biochemical and physiological repercussions. And just from a personal perspective, I think absolutely it, it can contribute to, to longevity in that way. Well, and this concept of meaning making and how it ties into spirituality, I think that you're really talking about something very important. And especially when people um, are conflicted about a notion of God or religion, and when it's repackaged into these terms, I think it makes it easier for people to want to step into it and embrace it, that it's not about devotion to a religion, it's really about devotion to humanity. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I know a lot of people who are, are very devoted to their religions and, and sort of like the exercise thing, like if you are, that's great. But it doesn't have to be about that. And really, a, a huge driver within that relationship be, between the, the religion and the good health outcomes is the engagement. And wherever you get that, I think it's equally beneficial. What are the ages of your oldest living participants? We have only just less than half a dozen remaining, and they are now over 100 years old. Wow. So half a dozen, over 100, and that's all that are left, period? Or have you, uh, have you brought more into the study or no? Well, we actually have not gone and recruited additional participants. So we have talked sometimes about wouldn't it be interesting you know, to get – get the kids of these folks and see what they've done and, and, you know, make it a more kind of a familial sort of study, but we've never actually done that. So these are the original participants. So the original 1500 that came into the program um, from the time they were about 10 years old and all of them have died except for the final half dozen. Correct. And how, how is our, is the health of these people and what is the makeup men versus women? Are they mostly women? Yeah, um, we do. It's about split, um, and there we don't have a lot of contact with them now. Although um, in the last two or three years, um, there was quite a bit of contact with a couple of people. Um, but as as people are aging, even if they're aging very well and very healthfully, I think at at the very end of life, there's a tendency to just sort of not be as as interested perhaps in talking to researchers, I will say. Got it. That's nicely put. <laughs> but that is fascinating that they've all been tracked through their deaths. And is there a trend in terms of what was the um, main cause of death? Was it cancer? Was it heart disease? Was it uh, unknown causes? Was it just old age? Well, you know, that's really interesting because we saw a pattern in in cause of death that really was quite consistent with their age cohort. So certainly cardiovascular disease and cancer were high there. But every time we've looked at, you know, a personality characteristic or, you know, some sort of psychosocial variable like were your parents divorced or were you divorced and looked at that in terms of mortality risk, we've looked to see, are, is it placing you at greater risk for a particular cause of death. And what we have found is that these things are really generalized. So what they're predicting is all-cause mortality. I think that's very important because a lot of the health recommendations that are out there will maybe adjust your risk for a particular 
type of death or a particular health risk, but at the same time, they might be increasing your risk on something else. So I'm not so interested in something that protects me from cardiovascular death, but increases my risk of cancer death. And so when we're finding that these things predict all-cause mortality, that to me is much more powerful because it's death from everything. Yeah, we're all going there, right? Like we're, we're all headed to the exit door. It's just, you know, what kind of quality of life will we choose to maintain? Yeah. How yeah. do we want to do it? <laughs> and I'm glad you mentioned quality of life too, because I want to throw this in there. I've, I've had so many people say, oh, well, you know, conscientious, like that sounds kind of boring. And I, I don't know if I really want to live a longer life, if I'm going to have to give up all the stuff I like. And I am so quick to just say that is not true. These people lived such fascinating and interesting lives. And they, you know, the ones who were conscientious, they had more opportunities and they did such wonderful and interesting things. So our data do not suggest at all that you've got to live this very regimented, boring life if you want to make it to 90 or 100. What they say is you want to live a rich life. And that's a very different thing, but that's a rewarding thing. Indeed. And we're almost out of time. And, and the word popped into my mind, risk, when you said that, you know, that the, mm -hmm. the conscientious doesn't necessarily mean boring. And what I think I hear you saying that these participants led these rich lives, but that there were adventures. And with those adventures comes a, a bit of healthy risk. I think that's true. And, and you got to be smart about it. I mean, I, I sometimes take risks. I've gone skydiving. I've done some high altitude mountain climbing. I, I enjoy risk, but I try to be smart about it. And I, I try to take in the whole picture. And it seems that, that folks in this project who lived long lives were doing that same thing. Wow. Well, um, you have made me smile. You've made me uh, have a lot more to be uh, happy about today in <laughs> having spoken with you. The book is The Longevity Project. And to learn more about Dr. Leslie Martin and The Longevity Project, please visit www.howardsfriedman.com slash longevity project slash. And it's a little bit of a long address. So I'm going to say it again. It's www.howardsfriedman.com slash longevity project and slash again. And on Facebook, that page is the longevity project. And on Twitter, you can reach Dr. Leslie Martin directly at Leslie R. Martin followed by the number one. That's Leslie R. Martin one. Go out and make it a great day. Dr. Martin, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Here come the tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress came and has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. 
Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about wise aging. We're talking about preventative medicine, enlightened longevity, and what it takes to connect well, love well, and live long as we march along through the adventure of life. My second guest is Dr. Sharon Berquist, MD, FACP. She is a board-certified internal medicine doctor, researcher, teacher, and speaker specializing in preventative medicine and healthy aging. She is a Rollins Distinguished Clinician on the faculty of Emory School of Medicine and the medical director of Emory's Executive Health Center, a state-of-the-art, evidence-based lifestyle prevention program. Dr. Berquist is on the team leading Emory's Healthy Aging Study, the largest clinical study ever done in Atlanta with the aim of finding early biomarkers of chronic diseases such as heart disease, diabetes, cancer, and Alzheimer's disease. She is dedicated to sharing knowledge about health and wellness and has contributed to over 150 media segments, including Good Morning America, CNN, The Weather Channel, the Wall Street Journal, and NPR. Dr. Sharon Berquist is also on the International Council of Experts of the True Health Initiative, a nonprofit promoting evidence-based lifestyle to prevent chronic disease. Dr. Berquist graduated from Yale University and completed her medical education and training at Harvard Medical School. Welcome, Dr. Berquist. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Well, this is um, an area that, of course, is near and dear to my uh, heart because I am a woman of a certain age who has been really a, a, a lifelong participant in in preventative medicine and, and good caretaking of this one body that I've got for this lifetime. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about um, common diseases that occur with aging, such as heart disease, diabetes, and dementia that we mentioned, and how they can be prevented. Because I don't know that people truly understand, especially with dementia, that it is something that can be prevented. Yeah, Lisa, so these chronic diseases that are common with aging that you mentioned, they're actually diseases, um, which means that they're not a natural part of aging, and, and diseases are largely preventable. These chronic diseases are 80%, 80% preventable. Um, so one of the biggest learning that we have learned about aging is now that people are living longer, we, we can study people. So in the last century, life expectancy has increased by 30 years. So we have more people aging healthy. And it's allowed us to really figure out what's normal with aging and what is actually a disease that's so common that for years we thought that it's part of the normal aging process. And since these are diseases, we now know the pathways on a really cellular level, like down to our molecules and our genes that are promoting these chronic diseases. And these are the same pathways that accelerate how we age. And if we target these pathways through our lifestyle choices, we can not only largely prevent these diseases, but we can slow the rate at which we age. 
This is phenomenal and very helpful, particularly in talking about uh, dementia. I just want to go back to that because I mistakenly thought that dementia was part of the natural aging process. And what I hear you saying is that's absolutely not true. Absolutely not true. Um, you know, so about 5 to 10% of people carry genes that increase their susceptibility to um, the most common form of dementia, which is Alzheimer's. But the majority of people do not. Um, and lifestyle can play a very large role. To give you an example, um, there is a diet called the MIND diet, um, M-I-N-D, which um, really stands for Mediterranean slash DASH um, intervention for neurodegenerative delay. But it's really a diet that was shown to decrease the risk of Alzheimer's disease by 53% in people who followed it for four and a half years. Wow. Wow. And I have to imagine that when you use the word Mediterranean, that it is a diet that is also a rich and valuable source for just general well-being, general health and well-being. Absolutely. There have been many, many studies on the Mediterranean diet. And study after study has shown that it can decrease heart disease, decrease how the brain ages, improve how you sexually age. Um, and this MIND diet is really a twist on the Mediterranean diet where they've taken components of the Mediterranean diet that specifically affect brain health. So it has a little more green leafy vegetables, a little bit more blueberries than a Mediterranean diet. Um, and it just speaks to the power of lifestyle, the choices you make, the choices you've been making for years, and how they impact how you age. Well, I'm optimistic, you know, that I, I, you know, in my early 50s, I see I see myself in comparison to others who have not, you know, been exercising their whole adult lives, who have not been keeping a healthy, clean diet, who have, um, you know, been under excessive amounts of stress. And I do see the difference not only in how they look, but other things like their hair, their skin, um, um, just their overall well-being. So this is something that if we teach our kids from when they are very young, that we we uh, are hopeful that we're going to have a population that ages successfully and, and healthfully. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Lisa. I, I think we need really a paradigm shift because you know, when you mentioned these are diseases common with aging, we view them as old age problems, but truly they have their roots very early in life. And if yes. we view them as really childhood diseases, I think it would change our perspective on the, the time frame with which we can alter the trajectory of how we age. You know, well, you, really you, you say something that's really important, though. You say that our health and longevity is mostly in our control. That flies in the face of what most of us believe. Yeah, so that is taken from really this Danish twin study that is very often quoted. Um, it's done over a decade ago that took twins, followed them for years, and found that 75% of longevity was lifestyle and environment driven and only 25% was genetic. Wow. Wow. Can you can you paraphrase that another way in the sense um, that let's say we have a family history of diabetes 
or cancer or Alzheimer's disease, um, that means that we may have a, a genetic predisposition, but that we can um, halt the onset of the disease through lifestyle or mitigate it? Absolutely. Again, about 80% of chronic diseases are preventable. And part of the way we can mitigate or halt is that by our lifestyle choices, we can change how we express our genes. We have the ability to turn on certain genes and turn off certain genes. Wow. And, 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 and yeah. what does that? Um, you know, it occurs at the DNA level, but it's driven by our lifestyle choices. So largely our diet, how much stress we have, our choice of exercising, how sedentary we are, how much we sleep. Um, a lot of factors play into that. And as uh, Western uh, human beings, we, and, and I'm not just talking about Americans, but in, in, in the Western world in general, we sleep too little, we exercise do, too little, um, we have too much stress, uh, we don't uh, allow enough pleasure in our lives on a daily basis. And all of these are, are, are factors, contributing factors to our health, which heretofore we might not have been paying attention to. Exactly. And if you contrast our Western life um, and lifestyle to other countries where they have a very high percentage of centenarian. So there are hot spots in the world where uh, people do live very long, healthy lives into their 80s and 90s on up. And in those cultures, the healthy choice is the easy choice. You know, they are yeah. walkable communities. They live off the land. They culturally enjoy family, spend time with family, sleep is valued. So you're absolutely right. We have a culture that makes healthy choice a, a challenge. You know, we, we fight upstream against a current to make the choices we know we should be making. Well, what's interesting about what you just shared is when you look at um, how we are marketed to, that we're marketed um, that the... That, that happiness and the well-being and the good life is contained in some package, in some widget, we'll just call it, because it doesn't really matter what it is, when in fact um, these cultures that have these wellness hotspot or these well-aging hotspots, they don't have that. It doesn't exist in the same way. Absolutely. Um, it's just what they do naturally. Um, so we really need to work on how we age both as individuals and collectively as a society. Yeah, so the paradigm shift is one that is mental as well as, as physical. You know, maintaining the healthy diet, maintaining the healthy lifestyle, but the other component it sounds like is the emotional or the, the mental mindset. And what's really interesting about that, Lisa, is the mental framework affects how you age more than the physical. You know, our public health messaging is very focused on diet and exercise, and of course they're very important, but the mental well-being component, at least in a lot of clinical studies, overwhelms even these physical healthy aging signs. Um, so, for example, 
if a person perceives the aging process in a positive way, you know, pro-aging, that they're going to live with vibrancy as opposed to just decline and morbidity, they can add seven and a half years to their life compared to people who have more of a negative perception of how they're going to age. And that effect is actually greater um, on longevity than your blood pressure, cholesterol, body mass index, or exercise. Wow. We're going to need to go to a break, Dr. Berkowitz. And when we come back, I want to carry on the discussion with you because this is riveting to me. To learn more about Dr. Sharon Berkowitz, please visit her website, drsharonberkowitz.com. On Twitter, she is at shberkowitzmd. And on Facebook, Dr. Sharon Berkowitz. Here come the tunes, and we will be right back. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Are you or do you know a returning U.S. military man or woman in need of restoring joy in their lives? Did you know that our nonprofit, Harvesting Happiness for Heroes, offers stigma-free combat trauma and post-deployment reintegration programming? Check us out at www.hh4heroes.org. That's HH, the number four, and heroes.org. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Um, Dr. Burke, was the book 10 Principles for Optimal Health and Longevity, is this a book that is out now or will be coming out? You know, it's just a little ebook. Um, uh, okay, so that's it's okay. Available for download off the website. Okay, so we'll we'll just give that a little mention. You know, like a little a little something something. And um, there is so much goodness here. Oh my gosh! I hope you'll come back again, and we'll we'll do these series ongoing um, throughout the year. Should we talk oh, a little bit about the diet to, yeah. itself, or and, and what I, the the mental, physical, and emotional diet? Because it really is training the mind as well as the other parts. Oh, absolutely! I'm happy to talk about. There's so much in each of these categories. Um, yeah, I would love to delve into, um, you know, any level of detail on what to do in specific. Um, okay, you know, because diet is obviously a big brushstroke. Yes. And, you know, there's so many um, shows out there talking about, you know, eating to live longer. But what we're really talking about is living well, sort of the compass of living well to live longer, you know, hitting all the coordinates. Yes. And that's the key. And that's where we're lagging. Okay, that is what I, I, I hear you. I, I feel the same way. And that's what I'm hoping to, you know, fill a little bit of that in the coming year with this content. 
because I, I see it in myself because I'm like my own guinea pig over here and I'm not a doctor. I just play <laughs> one on the radio. <laughs> okay, let's come back. One, two, three. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, I really urge you to download and share this podcast with anybody who you love, who you would love to see have a long, vital, healthy, joyful um, robust life. We're talking about really our our well-being on multiple levels with Dr. Sharon Berquist. She is a physician. She is a lecturer. She is a media personality who really has been studying, writing on, researching, and teaching about the value of a lifestyle prevention program to age well, to age joyfully. And we're talking about beyond the typical diet that um, we're often told about in the media. We're talking about really hitting up the compass of our life on all coordinates. And prior to the break, Dr. Berquist and I had gotten into the discussion of the emotional component as being probably one of the more overriding factors. Dr. Berquist, chime in here on our, our health. Yeah, absolutely. You know, when we say mental well-being, it's above and beyond managing mental diseases. We're talking to be spiritually dissatisfied, um, to be at a state where your mind positively influences your body. Yeah. And, And there are many components to that. You know, we touched on just having a positive perception of aging, of how aging can be a self-fulfilling prophecy. But other components are staying socially connected, um, having purpose and meaning in life, um, having a sense of humor. I think these all help manage your stress. Um, It helps you build resilience um, and buffers you against stress. Um, So it's very powerful in how it influences your physical health. And in terms of stress, I think it's important to touch upon the difference between um, a deleterious kind of stress, you know, the, the stress that when we are undergoing extreme adversity in trauma, let's say on the one hand, and on the other hand, the good kinds of stress that come from really stretching oneself to grow, to continue to grow and explore and and transform. Absolutely. So, Stress really, it gets a bad reputation because we associate it with that chronic stress that wears us down and we can't shake it and it wakes us up at three in the morning. But there's exhilarating stress and we learn and grow from that. Um, And even on a chemical level, you know, we call it stress inoculation, much like a vaccine where short bursts of stress actually help you secrete hormones like DHEA that create pathways that help you remember that challenge so the next time you're better prepared at handling stress. So So what, I'm sorry to interrupt you, I just want to just clarify one thing, that when we um, have a high resilience or high distress tolerance to the good kinds of stresses, is what you're saying that when the more challenging and difficult ones come along that the body is better able to uh, adapt and bounce back? Exactly. Much like how we build immunity to a vaccine, where we get brief bursts of stress, and over time we build immunity, 
And the more confident we are to meet that challenge the next time, the more resilient we are. So you get on this very positive, virtuous cycle of stress resilience. Got it. What about um, uh, what you call the pre-disease stage? Talk a little bit about that. So we view health and disease as very binary. You know, we ask ourselves, are we healthy? And usually we mean, do we have a disease or not? And if we don't, we say we're healthy. But in between those two ends of the spectrum, there's actually a continuum. And that's where pre-disease comes in. Our bodies are very resilient. So most of our organs and systems, if they had a little damage, like let's say you drank a little too much alcohol and your liver got irritated, well, we're very resilient. We repair that damage and we heal. But each time we do that, we tap into our reserve and we tap further into that pre-disease state and move ourselves towards the disease end of the spectrum. So part of how aging healthy um, comes in is the more we practice the habits that limit that pre-disease, you know, the cumulative lifestyle benefit of people who have been trying to eat healthy and exercise from a very young age on up, the more we maintain our well-being um, and the less likely we are to you know, all of a sudden, you know, quote, fall apart. Understood. It makes perfect sense. Talk a little bit about the relationship of our gut. I recently read uh, our gut, our, our bellies to our, to our health. I recently read an article about it was referring to um, our stomachs being like the second brain. And they are. So what's fascinating about the role that our gut bacteria play in our health is that in, within our intestines, I should back up and say that we have trillions of bacteria. Some are good bacteria, some are bad bacteria. And the greater diversity and balance we have between the two, the healthier we are. And when we disrupt that balance, we increase our susceptibility not only to gastrointestinal diseases but throughout our body. And part of the way our gut bacteria extend their reach um, to our mental health as well as to our overall health are really two ways. One you mentioned is our, our gut is our little brain. It's connected to our big brain through the enteric nervous system. So we have a whole nervous system inside our bellies that make a lot of the same chemicals that our brain makes, like dopamine and serotonin, um, mm. and carry a lot of the same nerve cells. So when your gut bacteria are disrupted, there's really like a two-way communication. It can disrupt your mental well-being. And vice versa, when you're under chronic stress, you can disrupt the balance between your good and bad bacteria. And if we are unable to regulate some of the external forces of stress in our lives, we are able to regulate the kinds of food and thought and thoughts that we feed ourselves to, I, I would think, mitigate or at least overcome some of this. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can view your gut bacteria as like a legal form of a mind-altering substance. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> so, 
absolutely, absolutely. There's a lot of truth in what you said. And, and how you can do that is, um, you know, so this is one of those instances where there's probably a little hype ahead of the science. A lot of people promote probiotics. Um, but the, the missing piece there is that a lot of probiotics are actually destroyed by the acid environment in our stomach, and they never make it all the way to the gut to set up shop. And, uh, and the quantity may not be sufficient either. So one of the effective ways to really build that good bacterial balance is by eating prebiotic foods. So prebiotic foods unlike probiotics, are foods that promote our good bacteria. So our good bacteria feed off of these good um, these prebiotics, and you're preferentially building the population of your good bacteria. What are some the examples types of, of, a, of... Yeah, of prebiotic foods. Yes. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, so all prebiotics are fiber, but not all fiber is prebiotic. So... A lot of vegetables are prebiotics, um, leeks, onions, artichokes, um, also legumes, lentils, whole wheat um, are oh. all great sources. Wow, whole wheat. You know, there's so much now being said, oh, you know, don't eat gluten, don't eat gluten, it makes your belly swell. So what you're saying is that the whole wheat is, in fact, a good thing. And not only is it a good thing, but it's prebiotic. Yes. And, um, and, and if gluten is an issue, there are a lot of um, alternative ways to get fiber. You know, you can stick with the legumes. You can um, have more lentils. And they're all good sources of prebiotics. So we can all increase the prebiotic content. So um, across the United States, when they do national surveys, the average American only gets half the recommended amount of prebiotic. Wow, we are tr- we are nutritionally impaired over here in America. I think <laughs> I know in some ways overnutritioned, in other ways undernourished. <laughs> yeah, 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 yes, exactly, exactly. Um, I want to make sure we hit um, a couple more points because we're almost out of time. Which I, I I always love to say to guests when this happens, you'll have to come back. It's almost like I can wrangle you into a second or third visit. So I hope that's I okay with you. I would love to come back. That oh, I would, enjoy I would that. love that. Yeah. I want to just tap into hormonal regulation because this is something that um, typically we think of and attribute to um, perimenopausal or menopausal women or people who are of childbearing years that um, the hormonal fluctuations are really for the for, for, for the females and really it's across the board we're talking about. Oh, it is across the board. So, you know, the the middle age time period gets obviously um, considerable attention because it's like our second puberty. I mean, we go through dramatic hormone changes in our 50s, not just in estrogen and testosterone, but also in growth factor uh, or growth hormone, insulin growth factors. Um, So it's deservedly getting a lot of attention, but there's so many hormones in our body and some are going to change with aging and some are in our control. Um, So we've already touched on cortisol, the stress hormone, how that's regulated, how much we secrete the excess or the balance of it is to a large degree in our control. We're going to have to um, stop now, unfortunately, and I'm like biting my nails because I really would love to talk about menopause, but but, because I live with somebody (laughs) that that has menopause. (laughs) 
<laughs> but we'll have to do another show on that. But I want to give your contact information to learn more <laughs> about my wonderful guest today, Dr. Sharon Berquist. Please visit her website, drsharonberquist.com. On that website, she has a nifty little ebook that is available to you, our listener, 10 Principles for Optimal Health and Longevity. On Twitter, that handle is SHBerquistMD. And on Facebook, Dr. Sharon Berquist. And we're going to make a date to have you back because there is, we've just hit the tip of the iceberg here. I here know, are, so much more to talk <laughs> thank about. <laughs> huh? There's so much more to talk about. So much more, and we will do it. But here are a few thoughts before we part and before you come back again. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my wonderful guest today, Dr. Leslie Martin and Dr. Sharon Berquist, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio is produced in collaboration with TogiNet and KBUU and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange. Go out and rock your day. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Join us each and every Wednesday for a brand new broadcast and continue to harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with hundreds of free downloadable podcasts from our libraries on iTunes and SoundCloud. To learn more about Lisa's global practice as an applied positive psychology coach specializing in lifestyle management as well as addiction and trauma recovery services, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook Facebook at Harvesting Happiness, following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen, and tweeting us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness.